0: Welcome to our verse-by-verse study of the Old Testament book of the minor prophet Zechariah. The book of Zechariah contains more visions and prophecies regarding Christ and the end times than all the rest of the minor prophets combined. The role of the prophet was to tell God's people what God thinks about them and what they are doing or not doing. God cares about his people and he cares about everything in their lives. The book of Zechariah reminds us of God's constant thoughts and teaches us about his plans for the future so that we have hope when we need it. So grab a cup of coffee, open your Bible to the book of Zechariah as we look for Christ in the Old Testament. All right, turn your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 6, Zechariah 6. Continue our series, series, A Glorious Future. Hope. Hope is the confident expectation of coming good. Hope has the idea that there is, there is something that, that, that is found outside of us that we look at and we see good is going to come from that. Hopelessness is a state of someone who looks and doesn't see anything good or does not, does not have the, 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 the sense that good is coming. And in fact, typically the state of hopelessness has that sense of, you know, you know, the opposite of good is coming. Misery, difficulty, hardship, pain, suffering, those sorts of things. And I was working out in the yard yesterday and had to cut a branch off a tree. And I had a, a handsaw for that. And I was, you know, going to work on it, and the, and the image uh, came to me that hopelessness is like that. You, you, don't, you don't wake up and just all of a sudden are hopeless. You know, yesterday you had hope, and today you don't, kind of a thing. There's something that goes on inside of us that, 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 that erodes hope. And, like I was cutting that tree, every time I pushed that saw forward, chips would fly off the branch, and I pulled it back, and more would fly off this way. And the same thing is true in life as the hard things come, and they, they just they take little pieces of our hope, little pieces, little pieces, little pieces, and it goes on and on and on, and then as I was sawing that branch, and it was pretty good sized. Um, you know, I got about, mm, probably about 70% of the way through and all of a sudden I started hearing, as, as the weight of the branch could no longer, it wasn't being supported to the tree because I was cutting away at it. And then as I kept going, then, then it, the weight just pulled it down, separating that branch from the source of life that no longer was there going to be any hope of that branch living, right? That's what happens there. Hopelessness is the same way. Something is eroding the connection to the source of hope, to the source of strength, the source of life. And as time goes on, and as it continues and continues, if that source isn't doing something to keep, hope going there's a point where there's just there isn't any anymore and we can look around and we see may, maybe in our own lives that the, 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 the saw of life is just cutting away at some portion of our life and we're feeling chips of hope flying off or, or we can look at people around us and we see hopelessness in people around us and you just know it wasn't something that happened yesterday it's something that's been going on for a while. And they, people that are hopeless, they see, they see pain and suffering ahead. They see poverty or loss ahead. They see misery or despair. They see meaningless toil with little hope of success. It's hard to live in a state of hopelessness. Even just getting up in the morning and doing the normal things of life can be excruciatingly tedious and can drain the life right out of a hopeless person. A hopeless person will go to great sometimes unbelievable lengths to try to escape their hopelessness. And if they can't mask the pain, they may try to escape it completely, including trying to escape escape life completely. Now, it's my hope, my hope, that none of you have ever experienced that. And if you haven't, praise God, and if you have, I pray that you're on the other side of it. As we go through life, we may have, just going through life, you're going to experience the cutting away of our hope. And what I would like to we'll talk, we'll spend a little time in this morning and talk about is that we have a source of hope that can never be cut away. That even though the world is cutting, that we have a connection through Christ that can never be cut away. So that when we're feeling hopeless, there's something we can do about it. There's something we can do to change our circumstances, to change the way that we're feeling. Because hopelessness is something that dwells completely in you. The world may be cutting away at you, but the reality is, is whatever you're feeling is in you. And there is a solution. There is an answer. There is a way to get to the other side. And we're going to talk about that today. And as we're here in Zechariah chapter 6, we've got to just kind of remind ourselves where we are. It's very possible that some of the people that Zechariah is ministering to at this time are feeling a bit hopeless. Or they're approaching that point of hopeless as they have come back from Babylon, exile in Babylon, where in reality most of them weren't living terrible lives. But they came back to Jerusalem because That's the city they loved. But they came back to a city that had been lying in ruins for 70 years. They came back to a situation that was very, very hard. Not only was it hard, but there were people around them that didn't want them to be successful. And they were resisting them. So God had called them to finish building the temple that they'd started building a decade or so before. And they are working on it, but it was hard. And so Zechariah is sent to encourage them with a series of visions. And we're going to get to the eighth of eight visions today. And the, the visions were meant to give them hope where they may have been, been flirting with hopelessness. They may have been moving in the direction of hopelessness. And we got to remind ourselves that one of the things that we have that is a source of hope is the Word of God. In Psalm 119.81 it says this, my soul faints for your salvation. The idea of, of just longing for God to deliver us from whatever is cutting away at our branch. But I hope in your Word, it says. I hope in your Word. Why? Because God's Word is the source of life. Let's pray. And we'll look for hope in God's Word this morning. Heavenly Father, we come thanking you. And Lord, I, I I can't possibly know the state of every heart in this place right now. But you do. And you know those hearts that are wrestling with and struggling with this idea of hopelessness. That life is hard. Life is... You know, whatever, whatever is bringing that, whatever is leading them down that path and is cutting away at their hope, Lord God, you know what it is. You know what they're feeling. You know why they're feeling it, Lord God, and you have an answer for them. And so we pray right now as we take this time, whether, whether we're here right now in this place, or we're, we're watching this online or we'll watch it someday in the future, we recognize that, that there, is, there is hope there is always hope. If there is life, there is hope. And so, Lord, we, we rest in that reality. But sometimes, Lord God, it's hard to find it. It's hard to get there. And so if someone is here and they're struggling today to hope, Lord, that you would minister to their heart right, right where they are. You would help them to rest in you and know the, 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 the peace and the joy and the comfort of your hope. We thank you, Lord, for this day, for your word, and we pray your blessing over it all now. In Jesus' name, amen. The eighth vision that we're going to look at, Zechariah, while it's, it doesn't, doesn't sound like it's a message of hope, we'll get there at the end, uh, because ultimately it's a message of judgment. And so we're going to, we'll get to the, how judgment can end up bringing, to, bringing us to a place of hope. As we look at this, you know, Zechariah is one of the prophets. He's one of the minor prophets. And, and um, like several of the other prophets, there's a lot of symbolism in here. So you look at it and you say, okay, I'm looking at that. I have no idea what that means, right? So that's why we gather together and talk about it so that we all figure out what it means, right? That's why we're here. Somebody, somebody studies it and they stand up here and they say, okay, this is what it means so that you don't have to do all the hard, heavy lifting on it. And I, get, I got volunteered to do it. God God, voluntold me, so here I am. I love doing it. Um, Zechariah, chapter 6, verse 1. Then I, that'd be Zechariah, turned and raised my eyes and looked, and behold, four chariots were coming from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of bronze. Again, the, when we read something like this, especially the prophets, they're speaking in symbolic language, but they're using terms are using things that people would understand what they mean you know do we know what a chariot is yeah we've we've all seen them in the movies you know Uh, anybody ever ridden in a chariot okay probably not um you know a real chariot not not the one not your not your you know your never mind anyway so no we haven't Uh, but we know what they look like we know you know they're they're this thing and you know ben-hur and all that stuff we got all that and so there's this, but what is that? Is there? It's symbolic of something. What is it symbolic of? Well, they're used, in, you know, chariots are used in lots of different ways. They're used to travel. You know, it's a way to use them. They're also a symbol of, of power and authority. The king, the leaders would often do it. But the most common use of them in scripture is as tools of war. And so that especially in context of how we're looking at this today, that's the, that's the interpretation that is most likely to apply to this. So these four chariots are coming, and they're coming from between mountains of bronze. Okay, that's, that's different because most mountains we look at, they don't, they, they're not made of bronze, right? They're made of rocks. They're made of dirt. They're made of things like that. So again, there's symbolism there. The symbolism of bronze almost always points to judgment. You almost can't find an example in Scripture where the bronze doesn't have something to do with judgment. One of the things that one of the most common ones that we see is the altar that was in front of the temple and the tabernacle um, was was covered in bronze. And it points to the the sacrifices that were made. So the altar was used. They would take an innocent animal and kill it and then sacrifice it onto this altar. They'd, pour the, they'd sprinkle the blood around it. They'd burn the parts of it on it. And it was how sins were covered over, that there was a cost for sin. If somebody sins, if somebody disobeys God, breaks one of God's rules, then there had to be a payment made for it, and the payment had to be an innocent payment. Had to be some, An innocent creature had to be sacrificed for it which all points to the ultimate sacrifice, which was Christ. The, the most innocent of all creatures, beings, was Christ. And he was sacrificed and, uh, to atone for sins, to cover over, to escape the judgment that sin deserves. The reality is that, is that God created this world, right? Right? We should try to acknowledge that God created everything. And he did it perfectly. And he created humans in his image, which means that they were created to be like God. They weren't God, but they were to be like him in his character and nature. And one of the ways is to be holy, to be righteous, to be, to be good, to do what is right according to what God says is right. Right? And so God creates the world, he puts people on it, says, okay, don't, go do the right things. And if they don't do the right things, what should God do about it? Oh, just don't worry about it. It's not how God works. There has to be a consequence. There has to be some, some payment for it. And all throughout the history of humanity, God has set a way for people to make themselves right with God. All pointing to, to a person who will make you right with God, and ultimately that person making everything right with God, and that person being Christ. So, as we're looking at these these last visions, the last three visions are dealing with this very issue. In the sixth vision, it was dealing with the sins of people, individuals, and how they relate to God. In the seventh vision. It was how the sins of the nation were dealt with. And here we're talking about in the eighth vision, the sins of the world. All eight visions tell a story. They tell a story of God's plan of restoring the whole world back into a right relationship with him. We can see all of the redemptive history described here in this and or his desire for it. So these eight These four chariots, they're coming, and they're coming between the two mountains. That doesn't tell us which mountains they are. The common interpretation, the common um, description here is that they're, they're Mount Zion or Mount Moriah and the Mount of Olives. There are two mounts. They're very close together. There's a valley running between them, the Kidron Valley, which is also called the Valley of Decision on Mount Moriah. Jesus died for the sins of the world. On the Mount of Olives, He will come back to establish His righteous kingdom on the earth. We all, all of humanity, has to make a decision on which Mount they will meet Jesus. You either meet Jesus on Mount Moriah, where he sacrificed for your sins, or you meet him on the Mount of Olives where your sins remain and must be judged. Choice. We all have a decision to make, and if you're here, you probably have already made that decision. As Zechariah, he continues to see these, this, this image, these, these, these pictures. Verse 2, With the first chariot were red horses, with the second chariot, black horses, with the third chariot, white horses, and with the fourth chariot, dappled horses, strong steeds. The best interpreter of the Bible is the Bible. So let's go to to Revelation, all the way to the end of the book, Revelation chapter 6. There are only two books in the Bible that describe horses using colors like this. In Zechariah 6, Zechariah, it's a couple places in Zechariah, and in Revelation. And so by looking at the two, we get a better sense of what's trying to be communicated here. Now, in Revelation chapter 6, we have the, the beginning of the tribulation period, the seven-year tribulation, where God pours out his wrath on a wicked, God-hating, Christ-rejecting world. In the beginning of chapter 6, we have Jesus who appears and is the only one worthy to open the scroll, which which chapter 6 describes to us. And so chapter 6, we'll read verses 1 through 8. Now, I saw when the Lamb, that would be the Lamb of God, we know to be Jesus Christ, opened one of the seals and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, come and see and I look and behold a white horse And he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come and see another horse, fiery red, went out. It was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, and the people should kill one another. And there was given to him a great sword, speaking of war and and death, Verse 5, when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come and see. I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand, and I heard a voice from the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and a Three quarts of barley for a denarius. Do not harm the oil and wine, pointing to famine and disease, or form to famine primarily in death. Verse seven. And he opened the fourth seal. I heard the voice from the living creature say, "Come and see." I looked, and behold, a pale horse. The name of him who sat on it was Death and Hades. Followed him followed with him the power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword with hunger with death and by the beasts of the earth pointing to pestilence so these are these are judgments falling upon the earth and these you know these horsemen are just the uh, the tools that God uses to do it. So turn back to Zechariah. So we can, there's, there's such, a, such a close similarity between those two texts that you can take the interpretation of one and apply it to the other and vice versa. The, the, the applications go both ways. So as Zechariah is seeing these four chariots, it's giving us a picture, it's saying to us that these four chariots are, are, are in essence the similar to or the same image or the same interpretation as the four horsemen. So that's the reality that, that judgment is coming to the earth. They're going out to do the work of judgment. And that's not obvious to Zechariah, as it probably wouldn't be obvious to us when we first read this text. Verse 4. Then I answered, again this is Zacharias, and said. To the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? What is this? And the angel answered and said to me, These are the four spirits of heaven who go out from their station before the Lord of all the earth. The one with the black horse is going to the north country, the white are going after them, and the dappled are going toward the south country. Then the strong steeds went out, eager to go, that they might walk to and fro throughout the earth, meaning they're they're going everywhere, covering the whole earth. And he said, go, walk walk to and fro throughout the earth. So they walked to and fro throughout the earth. And he called to me and spoke to me, saying, see, those who go toward the north, excuse me, have given me, have given rest to my spirit in the north country." So these four chariots are, are the four spirits of heaven. These are angelic beings. They're, they're being used for judgment of God's enemies. And, and, and God has all sorts of ways of bringing judgment onto the world, and he uses these, these divine or these, um, these uh, angelic beings. In Psalm 104.4, it says this, Who makes his angel spirits? his ministers a flame of fire god can use angelic beings to bring judgment to the world he also uses them to serve god by helping god's people in hebrews 114 Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? So God can use his angels to do whatever he wants. An angel, um, you know, the literal interpretation of angel is messenger. And so the idea that they, they, they are servants of God, created to serve God in whatever way he chooses... People have some weird views about angels. They're, it, it, we've got to be careful. They're just—they're just beings that God created for His purpose. We're not to put any undue uh, value on them. We're not to worship them. Heaven forbid you worship angels. They are—they 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 do what they do because God told them to do it, and nothing else. In fact, it says that they're eager to go. I mean, these 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 angelic beings—they they want to go get the work done, but they're waiting. They have to wait until God sends them. Same thing is true. You can't, you can't speak to your guardian angel and say, hey, guardian angel, take care of me here. He doesn't have to listen to you. He won't listen to you. Do you know who he listens to? He listens to God. You want, you want God to send an angel to protect you? Talk to God. Amen? That was a little freebie. Verse 8, again. Again. Um, oh, yeah. Um, the, the second half of verse 8 says, See, those who go toward the north country have given rest to my spirit in the north country. Rest, in this context, is speaking of, of being able to cease from activity or work or, or whatever. When, when, when God rested from creation of the world, he didn't stop working. He just stopped creating, you know, the world. He finished the work of creation. The same thing is true here. When God finishes the work of judgment his spirit's gonna be able to rest from that activity. And that's what it's referring to here, that a, there is a place where God is going to have to bring judgment upon the world because one, he told us he was going to, so he has to do it. And that, and that also he tells us that it's not gonna go on forever. There's gonna be a beginning and then it's gonna end. And that when that end comes, then the spirit will rest and will not have to do that again. And, and all of us that love God would say, Thank you, Jesus, for that. There's a point where that will finally end. No one, no one should like the idea of judgment. You know, we, under, we, we can learn to understand it and appreciate it, but it should always make us uncomfortable to think of judgment, to think that God is going to have to do something terrible. And that terrible is going to affect people. That should bother us. That should, that, should make, that should unsettle us that it's going to happen. We may ignore. okay, it's right. I get it that it's right um, because God is holy. He must, he must bring a consequence for sin. He must. There must be some consequence for it. But it should make us uncomfortable. But there's going to be an end. And once, once sin has been done away with, and once Christ has established his perfect holy kingdom on the earth, then there can be rest. There's a transition here in this text, in this next verse. The visions are done, now now we go, we're going to go from visions to oracles where, where the prophet hears a word from the Lord. And, that, and when a prophet hears a word from the Lord, um, it means he either has to do something or say something. It's always, there's always a response that's required from the prophet when he gets a word from the Lord. Let's pick it up in verse 9. And then the word of the Lord came to me saying, receive the gift from the captives, from Heldai, from Tabaja, from Jediah, who have come from Babylon and go the same day and enter the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. <clears throat> Excuse me. When interpreting things like this, when you're interpreting an oracle, when you're interpreting a prophecy, you have to keep two things in mind. First, it was intended to be understood by the first people that heard it. When an oracle was expressed, the people that heard it the first time, there should be a way for them to understand it. Now, they may have to get you know, some clarification from the prophet, but it was, there was an application for them. There was something they, they, could, they could understand it. And there was almost always a future element to the prophecy. So there's a, you know, what we refer to as a near future element and a far future future element. And you should always try to find those, find those two pieces in whenever you get something like this. <clears throat> in the case of this, uh, that, you know, it, that, that, that you have these captives, they come from Babylon, you know, and, the, and another way of interpreting captives is exiles. So these are, these are Jews who were still in Babylon. That, you know, we think that, you know, when they came back, that they all came back. No, they didn't. Matter of fact, the largest percentage of them stayed in Babylon. That, you know, life was better for them in Babylon than it was in Jerusalem, so they stayed. That was gonna end up being a bad thing for them because Babylon was going to be destroyed, but God told them that, but that's another message. We're not we're not in that one yet. And so and so but they're doing well enough that they send a gift to Jerusalem of silver and gold. So they're, 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 they're flourishing in Babylon while the people in Jerusalem are struggling. And so, and so they send a gift to the people in Jerusalem. And the Lord tells Zechariah to, to accept the gift, to accept the gift. And then he's going to tell them to do something with it in verse 11. Take the silver and gold, make an elaborate crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. At the time that, that Zechariah is going through this, that Joshua is the high priest, Zerubbabel is the governor. So there's the, the spiritual leader and the, the, the government leader, if you will. But there was no king. They had no king. Matter of fact, they didn't have a king. They still don't have a king. You know, from the time that the last, the, you know, the exile to Babylon, Israel has been without a king. This elaborate crown is a symbol of a king. It's a symbol of rulership, of sovereignty. Even when they had a king, there was a distinction between the king and the high priest. And so what the Lord is telling Zechariah is to make this crown that should go to the king, but then to put it on the high priest. And so there's a different thing going on. It was meant to indicate, not that, he was in, not that Joshua was to be crowned as king, but to point to someone who would come in the future who would fulfill both roles in one person. Not something that had been done in the nation of Israel. Verse 12, Then speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, from his place he shall branch out, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Yes, he shall build the temple of the Lord. He shall bear the glory and shall sit and rule on his throne. He shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. That Them both is the role of priest." and king. Again, putting the two together. Now, if you're reading the King James or the New King James or other translations like that, you will notice that a lot of those personal pronouns, the me's and he's and hims and his are capitalized. And that's a that's a sign to us. That's a sign that the interpreters see this as a description as pointing to deity. And we know that is the case because The the idea of of the branch is ancient. It goes way back in the scriptures and talks about a a person who was coming into the life, especially the life of the Jews, that was coming to save them. And that person also is called the Messiah. You've heard that term, Messiah, means Savior. The New Testament term is Christ, Christ. You know, Jesus Christ, Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's his title, is a title. It means the same as Messiah. It means Savior. So we learn five different things about the Messiah here. You know, at, at one of the things that we, we do is we study Scripture. You know, we, we often will go through and we'll read it and we'll wonder, like, like, why didn't the Jews figure it out when Jesus was there? How do they miss you know, that Jesus was the Messiah. Because I'm going to give you five things here in this verse that point to, you know, the reality that Jesus was the Messiah. He was the Savior. He was the Christ. He was their, their king priest that they were waiting for. How did they miss it? Well, they missed it. Well, one of them is because they lacked faith. But also, they didn't have the New Testament. We have the whole New Testament. We look back through it. We see the Old Testament and the New Testament. We put the two of them together. I said, well, of course. How how could you miss that? Well, yeah, you got to have the whole story to know the whole story, right? So five things. Um, Oh, yeah, the the Jews, I I don't want to miss this particular quote, this scripture. The Jews of Jesus' time were looking for the Messiah, they were waiting for the Messiah to show up, the Savior, the Christ, and they had they had just decided what he would look like, you know, based on their interpretation of the Scripture. We needed a long long dialogue about the fact that they left out about half the half the story as they were making that uh, idea or seeing that, but they they you know that they were waiting for it. And in John 10, 24, he says this, And the Jews surrounded him and said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. The reason why they were asking that, the reason why they said that, is because Jesus was doing the things the Messiah would do. He was saying the things the Messiah would say. Why? Well, because he was the Messiah, and so he was being exactly what they expected, but not, not exactly what they expected because they were expecting something different. Primarily, they were waiting for a ruler, not, not a savior. They wanted a ruler that would, that would save them from their enemies. Jesus came to save us from our sin. He will come back to save us from our enemies, but that was not why he came the first time. So five truths that we want to, want to pull out of these verses. First, messianic truth, is the Messiah is a descendant of Jesse or David. The name the branch is used in several different places. One of them is Isaiah, who was a, a, came before Zechariah. Isaiah 11, verses 1 and 2 said this, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, meaning somebody's going to come from the line of Jesse from whom David came, and a branch shall grow out of his roots, The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, notice the capital H, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. So this Messiah, one of the things that Jews were waiting for, they were expecting a descendant of Jesse, a descendant of King David, to be the Messiah. So they, they knew that was one of the criteria, one of the, one of the qualifications of the Messiah is he would be a descendant of David. Both Mary, the mother of Jesus, and her husband, Joseph, could trace their lineage back through King David. And so they both, so Jesus fulfilled that prophecy, the prophecy, the prediction, the truth of the Messiah. Mess- Messianic truth number two, the Messiah had humble beginnings. You know, this, this, this phrase where it says that um, he will, <clears throat> excuse me, um, where am I at? He shall branch out uh, could also mean sprout up. And so the sense of it is that he's, he's not going to start as this full grown. He's not going to, one of the images that the Jews had, he's just going to appear. He's just going to spring into existence from nothing to everything. He's going to show up at the temple and be the Messiah. Well, the reality is, the Bible says that he was going to grow up. He's going to sprout up and branch out. Humble beginnings. In Isaiah 53, he shall grow up, for he shall grow up before him as a tender plant. And as a root out of dry ground, he has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Which means that, that while many were believing that, that Jesus, or excuse me, the Messiah would come, you know, again, to appear you know, at the temple and be somebody big, you know, the Bible said, no, he's going to be somebody that you wouldn't even probably recognize. It would just be humble, which Jesus was. The idea of branch out also has the idea of bearing fruit. And we can see that in Jesus as well. Messianic truth number three, the Messiah shall build the temple of the Lord. Says that in verse 12, he shall build the temple of the Lord. Joshua and the Jews at that time were in the process of rebuilding the temple. And they would finish it. It would take a couple of years. so They would, re- they would finish building a smaller version of the temple. And then, and then before Christ came, the Herod would come along and, and really make it this big and beautiful structure. And, and that's the temple that would exist when Jesus came there. And, and so, so the, this text, though, is referring to a different temple. In John 2.19, Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now while the Jews are saying, oh wait a minute, now it took us uh, 40 some odd years to build this temple. You're going to raise it up in three days? The the Bible tells us Jesus wasn't talking about the physical temple. He was talking about the temple of his body. He is the temple of God. And that he would raise it up pointing to the resurrection of Christ. His resurrection was a fulfillment of that prophecy there, of that, of that qualification, if you will, of, of being a messi- the, mess- the Messiah, is that he would build the temple. Messianic truth number four. The Messiah would rule as king. Now, this is the one the Jews really liked the most. This is the one they were really looking for. They were waiting to see a king ride in and and drive the Romans out. So he'll sit and rule on his throne. A, A descendant of David has been, you know, from the early days, from the days of David, we're told that God promised that a descendant of David would sit on the throne forever. How long is forever? Forever. Like, not ending. And, and 2 Samuel 7, 12. When your days are fulfilled, this is, this is the Lord speaking to David, and you rest with your fathers, meaning when you're dead, I will set up your seed, meaning your son and, and, and descendants after you who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, meaning the original tol- uh, temple that Solomon built, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That was a promise that there would be a king sitting on the throne of David forever. Now, Now, as we look today, that's what the Jews are waiting for. They're waiting for someone to come in, kick the Romans out, and reestablish the Davidic kingdom all the way back to the days of of King David. And and Jesus didn't do that yet. When when we got a picture of it in an event we call the triumphal entry, remember that? On the week before he was crucified, he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey and the whole, all the people were rejoicing and crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna. Jesus will come back as king. He just hasn't done it yet. When he comes back and he establishes his, his kingdom at what we refer to as the second coming, that he will establish his kingdom and it will be a kingdom that will exist forever. Messianic truth number five is the, the Messiah would be a priest. The Messiah will be a king and a priest. And this is an area where, where um, many Jewish um, scholars and, and some Christians as well struggle because the idea of putting a, cre- a king and a priest together was just foreign to the, their, their idea of how things should work. And and in many cases, they even come to the point where they believe in two messiahs, a messiah king and a messiah priest. And, you know, unfortunately, um, they think they're smart. (laughs) Whatever you have to do, that's what I say. In Psalm 110, 4, it says this, The Lord has sworn and will not relent, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. This is a messianic prophecy. God says you to you know, the Lord, to the Messiah, who will be his son, that you will be a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek was a very unique character in Scripture. A very unique character in Scripture. We, we read about him when Abraham came back from defeating a bunch of kings, and, he, and Melchizedek came back came out to meet him, and he was a priest of the most high God and the king of Salem. So he was both priest and king. Very unique, and the only place we see that pictured in the scriptures. And, and God says to the Messiah, you're going to be like that. You're going to be along that order, both priest and king. As we look back through the Old and New Testaments, we can see clearly that Jesus is Messiah. Jesus never fulfilled the role of a priest, never, never did any of the priestly things that we would expect. The Bible tells us, especially the book of Hebrews, describes to us that when he went to the cross and he took our sins with him to the cross and he died for our sins, he became our high priest, and not just high priest, but great high priest, who now rules in the temple in heaven. There's even something in here for all of us. In verses 14 and 15. Now the elaborate crown shall be for a memorial in the temple of the Lord for Helam, Tobajah, Jedediah, and Ham, the son of Zephaniah. Even those from afar shall come and build the temple of the Lord. Then you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and this shall come to pass if, if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord. One of the things when we, when we read Scripture, we, we, we never try to force ourselves into the account, but we should look and see when the account is pointing at us. And you see something like those from afar, that the reality is that if you're a believer here in Jesus Christ, there was a day where you were afar. You were far from God. And through Christ's sacrifice, God brought you near. And you are now from those who are afar. that you were lost in your sins and now you're not. God in his grace brings us near. And now we play a role in building his kingdom. And Zechariah is told here that the elaborate crown was to be a memorial in the temple. It was not meant to be something that was paraded around. It was meant to be a symbol of something, to remind them of something, to remind them of First off, you know the, of, of, the, of the, the gift, it was one of those things to remind them of the gift from the Babylonians, but more importantly, remind them of the coming Messiah, that every time the priests would go into the temple, they'd see that crown, and there it was. Oh, yeah, the Messiah is coming, the, crown, the, the person to whom this crown should go. It didn't even occur to me until I was studying this, and... and and thinking about it, that that the temple that they built here in Zechariah's time still existed when Christ came to Jerusalem. Where was that crown? Still in the temple. 400 years, more than 400 years, that crown had sat in the temple, reminding them the Messiah is coming, the Messiah is coming, the Messiah is coming. It would be something that they could pin their hope to. All of us have to understand that that the world is going to try to cut your hope away. It's going to try to cut you off. It's going to try to take away from you those things that God has promised you. The Jews went through some hard times. But no matter what they went through, that temple stood. It stood until the time of Christ. It stood until the the man, the branch to whom that that crown was intended, showed up and did his work. And you know what happened after that? Wasn't long after that, that temple was destroyed. Where is that crown today? No clue. But he who wears it, symbolically, is in heaven and he's going to come back for us now we don't have a crown to look at you know we don't have we don't have an object like that that we can look at and we can we can put our hope into frankly we have something better we have the whole word of god this book these paper pages or digital bits and whatever they are on your device, when we receive them and believe them, they can be our hope because they point us to the truth of what Jesus did for us, that when Jesus died on the cross he, he connected us. When we believe in him, we are connected to him so strongly through faith that nothing can cut us away from it. No matter how hard it gets, no matter how hard the, the world is cutting on you and sawing on you and, and axing on you, whatever term you want to use, it can't separate you from Christ. So that we can always we can always come back to that place when we're sensing a, a, a moving away from hope, when we're sensing life is hard and we're struggling with hope. We always have this book because it's unchanging. It it never gets old. It never wears out. It's always true. It's always right. It's always life. It's always love. It's always joy. It's always grace. It's always peace. It's always all of those things. When we come back to it, you know what, you know that tree as I was cutting on it, there was nothing going to fix that tree. I was cutting on it and that, those cuts were never healing. But when I come back to this word, whatever the world has done to me, this word can take away. It can heal it. Not only heal it, but it can make me stronger, make my connection to Christ stronger and deeper. God's word, believed, received, and believed, will produce hope. Hebrews 11 1. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. It's not enough just to have a Bible. You have to know what your Bible says, and you have to believe it. And, you know, you have to believe it even when you don't understand it. You know, two mountains of bronze, I have no idea what that means. That's all right. That's all right. You don't have to. Just believe. God's trying to tell me something. I may not understand it right now, but maybe someday. Maybe Pastor Rick will tell me. Maybe. And, and, And this is the kind of hope that will sustain us. The problem with what we see going on in the world is the world is trying to give us hope in things that cannot cannot produce hope. They cannot sustain us. They may give us some some glimmer of hope, but they won't last. The very next time the world takes the saw to your life, it's coming down. You need to have something that cannot be taken down. Hebrews 6, 19 and 20 says this. This hope we have, it was in one of the songs today too, as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast. Sure means it's true, it's right. Steadfast means it cannot be moved. We have an anchor which enters the presence behind the veil. Who is behind the veil? Jesus is behind the veil. Our anchor is set into the very presence of God where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Right now, Jesus is our high priest. If you are willing, he is also your king. He's coming back. When he comes back, he will be king. And no one will have a choice in that. Today we choose. Will you let Jesus be your king? Jesus is the cure of hopelessness. The Word of God, received and believed, will produce hope where there is none. Jesus is hope. He is hope incarnate. He is peace. He is love. He is joy. He is our all in all. On the cross, when He died for our sins, He did it so that you could have hope in this life. Put your trust in him today and hope. Amen? Amen. Pastor Randy is going to lead us in communion. And then um, I'll pray. And then he'll lead us in communion. Briefly. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for this day. And we do pray. Lord, we need hope. And so we pray for an anointing over... Lord, all that we're doing, all that, we're, all that, we're, all that we're, we're clinging to in this life, that we're striving for in this life, Lord, but the thing that we need more than anything else is we need you. We have your word. Help us to receive it and believe it that we might have hope. Even when the world is doing any, anything it possibly can to try to take our hope away, we know that we can hope in you, and we thank you and praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thank you for joining us on this exciting journey through the book of Zechariah. It is our hope that these messages will help you to grow in your faith. If there's anything that we can do to help you with that, don't hesitate to connect with us. You can do that by going to calvaryfv.com connect, and you'll find all the ways that you can connect with us there. As Christians, we are all connected in Christ. And one of the ways that we would like to engage with you is in the area of prayer please let us know how we can be praying for you. You can send us an email to prayer at calvaryfd.com or text the word pray to 951-419-5396. If this material has been useful to you, please share it with someone. Also, please pray that God would use these messages to help others find hope in Jesus Christ. You can also partner with us financially by going to calvaryfv.com give or text the word give to 951-419-5396. Until next time, go be radical with Jesus.